Okay, everybody, welcome back. It is so good to see all of you again. I think we're going to have a pretty light night tonight because we've had a lot of texts that people are sick or there's some concert going on, and so this might be it. So we're going to get started. I'm going to go ahead and pray because we have a lot to cover tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing all of us here tonight. Um, this is a busy time of year, and I know there's so many things kind of pulling for our attention. Thank you that you have impressed on all of us um, just the importance of coming here and studying your word. I pray that everything we talk about tonight would not just be people talking to one another or me speaking my words, but that it would be your spirit moving and active in a mighty and powerful way. I pray that you'd be revealing things to us that will change us and help us to look more like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are in week five now of 2 Samuel, and things are really starting to spiral. Last week, Madison walked us through David's major sin when he took Bathsheba for himself, got her pregnant, and then killed her husband to cover up his sin. Most of us are probably pretty familiar with that story. It's a pretty famous one. We kind of think of it as David's one big sin. So now we're in the portion of scripture right after that where we're going to see a chain of events. And this chain of events is, one, a fulfillment of what God said would happen as a result of David's sins against Bathsheba and Uriah. And two, it's also going to be more evidence of areas that David was lacking. We've seen really clearly in 1st and 2nd Samuel a lot of positive ways that David foreshadows Christ and points us to Christ. Here, though, tonight, we're going to see how he falls short in very specific ways. He's going to fall short in ways that point us to the need for a greater king who could do what he couldn't. We're going to see tonight that earthly kings will always fail us in ways that Jesus won't, okay? So that's the eyes that I want you to have for tonight. I want you to be looking for that as we talk, looking for the ways that earthly kings will always fail us in the ways that Jesus won't, okay? So we're going to jump in. We're going to start in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, to see what happens after David's big sin last week with Bathsheba and Uriah. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So right off the bat, we're told that Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. This was his full sister. Remember, David had a lot of wives at this point, so not all of these siblings are full siblings. So um, Absalom had a full sister named Tamar, and then Amnon was a son from another wife. So Amnon was Absalom and Tamar's half-brother. And we learn here that Amnon was in love with his half-sister Tamar. So Amnon wants her but it's his sister or his half-sister, so it's not an option. So he's really torn. We kind of see what comes next in the scripture. He's really torn about what to do. How can I handle these feelings that I'm having? So he takes some advice from his crafty friend Jonadab, and he pretends to be sick, and he manipulates a way to be alone with his sister. He pretends like he's sick, and then he asks, hey, will somebody, can you guys send Tamar to me to make me some food? And then when she comes, she's cooking him some food, and he sends everybody away. Okay, so this is where we're going to pick back up. He sent everybody away. She's made him some food, and she's going to bring it to him. Let's pick back up in verse 11. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. 
As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than he, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus wore the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Okay, so I want to start by pointing out a parallel that we're supposed to already be picking up on. Amnon wanted a woman that was not lawful for him to have. Last week, his father David also wanted a woman that was not lawful for him to have. Amnon found a way to take the woman that he wanted, just like his father David did with Bathsheba. We see Amnon sending someone to bring Tamar to him while he's lying down in his chamber. We saw David lying on a couch up on his roof and sending men to bring Bathsheba to him. We see Bathsheba described as kind of being, like, blameless. She's following the law. She's doing something that shows that she is righteous. She's purifying herself after being unclean. We see also Tamar here. She is described as following the law. Everything that she begs of her brother is pointing to what the law of that time would have had him to do. So both women are kind of presented as blameless. We see that Amnon left Tamar destitute. She is now ruined for any chances of future marriage. He's ruined her future marriage. David destroyed the current marriage of Bathsheba when he killed her husband. So we read these and we see all these parallels and we can't, think but, we can't help but think, but wow, like father, like son. And we're supposed to think that because what we're seeing here is David's sins are now being played out in front of him by his immediate family, by those who he loves the most. And the way that this scene is described, it would have been very easy for the author to say it very simply, Amnon raped Tamar. He could have just said that, but he doesn't. He really describes it in a lot of detail here because he's taking great care to make sure that the reader feels very deeply for Tamar. He describes her being tossed out like trash, weeping with her clothes torn and her head on her hand. He talks about how she is begging for him not to do what he's going to do. So he gives us all these details because he's trying to bring out some emotions in the reader. As a result of how he describes it, we as the reader feel like an intense hatred towards Amnon for a defiling Tamar and for destroying her future. We want justice for her. We want to see her restored. We want to see her life put back together. So we read this account and we think, where's her father? Where's the king? Surely he is going to set things right. He has the power to do so. We've seen him set things right in the past. Where is he? So we look in the text. Oh, there he is. In verse 21, it says, he was very angry. Okay, that's great that he was angry, but what did he do? Where was the justice? What was done for Tamar to piece her life back together? And what was done to Amnon to bring him to justice for what he had done? From what we can see, nothing. David was angry, and that was it. Where is our king who didn't hesitate to kill men when they stretched out their hands against Saul? Where is our king who was always so quick to deliver justice? Why is he failing his own daughter right now? 
that's right, is because the offender is his oldest son, who, by the way, is also next in line for the throne. So it appears here that his love for his oldest son has left him useless in his ability to enact justice. Gosh, if only there was a way for him to perfectly show both love and justice at the same time, but he can't. So we're left with this gut-wrenching scene of a ruined and an abused woman and a king who does nothing to set things right. But then we read on and there's this glimmer. There's a little glimmer of hope here. We see, wait a minute, she has a brother. She has a brother, Absalom. And we read in verse 22 that he hated Amnon for violating his sister. So we think to ourselves, well, wait, is he going to be the answer? Is Amnon the one who's going to set everything right? I mean, as a woman reading this, at this point in the story, I'm like, yes, come on, Absalom, avenge your sister. Something needs to be done. David's not doing anything. Somebody has to. So then Absalom steps in. And at first, a part of us is relieved. David's fallen short, but look, his son is going to step in and make everything right. But the story unfolds, and we're going to find ourselves pretty quickly searching for the breaks on Absalom. It becomes clear right away that he is not the answer to the problem. So we read on in the text, the, rest part of the next part of the story, we see that Absalom has some sheep shearers. It's sheep shearing season right now. And that was a time of feasting and celebration. So he's been plotting. This is two years after this event with Tamar has happened. So he invites all of his brothers, and he tells his servants, hey, we're going to get Amnon drunk. And when he is drunk, I want you to kill him. Okay, so he commands his servants to kill Amnon, the king of the son, of the son of the king. Now, this serves two purposes. It avenges his sister, but it also happens to make Absalom next in line for the throne, which is convenient. But when we look at what he's doing, he's delivering this judgment on his brother. But the judgment that he's delivering is not right. Because the punishment for rape at that time, you should have seen in your homework, was not death. What Absalom did here was he went far beyond the standard of justice at that time. The law at that time said that if you committed incest, which he did, you were to be cut off from your people. And if you raped a virgin, which he did, then you had to marry her. And this was really a law that it seems strange to us, like I would never want to marry my rapist. But at the time, this was a law that it was actually meant to protect women. Because if they had been raped and they were no longer suitable for marriage, their future was destroyed. It was very bleak. There was nothing coming for them after that. And this is why Tamar said that it was even worse casting her away afterwards than actually raping her. Because it meant no future for her. This was a different culture than the one that we live in now. So when Absalom kills Amnon, what he did is he did not do anything to restore Tamar's future. He killed the only one who could actually make anything right out of that situation and sealed her fate as a desolate woman. The one man who could have potentially been brought around to marry her, as weird as that sounds, it was her only hope at a future at this point. And Absalom destroyed that. So he did not restore her future when he delivered justice. We see that the justice that Absalom provided failed to bring any kind of restoration. It turns out he was not the answer to the problem after all. Man, if only there was a way to deliver justice that actually brought restoration. Wouldn't that be nice? So we go on. Absalom kills Amnon, and then Absalom runs and hides with his relatives on his mother's side. He knows that he cannot return without punishment. He knows that what he was doing was for a reason, but he knows that he has got, he's crossed some lines. He cannot come back 
and be in the presence of the king without having to be punished by him. He has committed murder, and he didn't just murder anybody. He committed the murder of the crown prince. This is a very big deal. And then it gets a little bit confusing in the text because at the end of this chapter and the beginning of the next chapter, it tells us that David mourned for his son Amnon, as he should. And then it gets a little confusing. I'm going to read the next two verses, verse 39 and then 14.1, and we're going to kind of explain what this means here. It says, And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Okay, those are some confusing verses because it sounds like what it's saying is that David was longing for Absalom. Like he wanted to be back in, into like a good relationship with him. He wanted to make peace with him. That's how those words read to us from our perspective. But this is not at all what the original language is getting at. I read several commentaries on this, and they all were pretty much unanimous. One of them even said the original language here was untranslatable. Like, it was very, very hard to translate. But the best that they could do, they all kind of kind of came around to this idea that what this text is saying is that the passing of time, because this has been three years now that he had been staying with his relatives, the passing of time took off the bitter edge. So David was now less inclined to punish Absalom quite as harshly, maybe not to the full extent of the law. So it's not saying here that David wanted Absalom to come home. If it was, why would Joab need to craft his whole plan to trick David into bringing him home, okay? What it's saying is that it is the passage of time had lessened his desire to maybe punish him quite as harshly. Three years had gone back. David was pretty okay with Absalom being away where he was because he knew that if Absalom came home, he was going to have to punish him harshly according to the law. But with Absalom over here in hiding, David could avoid having to deal with that. He could avoid having to deliver justice to his own son. So it was very convenient for Absalom to stay away. However, Joab saw a problem in this because Absalom is now next in line to be king. And Joab knew that Absalom cannot stay away forever because if, if there is eventually going to be a smooth transition of power, Absalom cannot be over and hiding somewhere. He has to be in the court with his courtly privileges and things like that. So Joab decides to craft a plan on how he can convince the king to allow Absalom to come home. So let's read a little bit of that plan. We're going to be in chapter 14, verses 2 through 7. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Then the, word of, then the woman of Tekoa came to the king. She fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. So this woman has this story. And when we look at this, at first it seems very similar to last week when Nathan told David that parable about the little sheep. And that was for the purpose of kind of giving, getting David to repent about his sin with Bathsheba. And so we see this that seems very similar. And after all, the stories have paralleled so far, right? I mean, David took a woman against her will, so did his son. David murdered somebody, now one of his sons had murdered somebody. David had some story to like bring him about to repentance, and now that's happening again. Or is it? Is that really what's happening here? 
I want us to realize that there's a lot of major differences between these two stories that we really need to notice. First, who told Nathan last week to tell David that story about the little lamb? Last week, we saw God sent Nathan to tell that story to David. After all, Nathan was a prophet, and the prophets were who God spoke to in order to guide the king and to lead the nation under his will. So God gave a message to Nathan to tell David in order to bring David to repentance. Is that what's happening here? Who sent the wise woman of Tekoa? Was it God? And I want to point out the word wise here, it does not mean wise the way we think of it. It's more like crafty, the crafty woman. So if you're thinking she's supposed to be some wise woman that is very like righteous, that's not it. This is more of a crafty woman. So who sent her? Well, we read here that Joab did. And it says that Joab put the words into her mouth. So first it was God sending Nathan. Now it's Joab sending this woman, putting words into her mouth. God has not been mentioned at all so far in the text tonight. He has been silent. We're basically seeing the sin of humanity unravel. Now let's pause and look at her actual story, the story that she tells. She says, hey, I have two sons, and they were fighting in a field, and one ended up killing the other. And now people want the one who's still alive to be killed for his crime. That would devastate her because then she would have no son to left, on, left to carry on her husband's name and inherit her land. So think about that story. Is it the same as what happened with David's sons? It's not even close, you guys. David's son committed carefully premeditated murder two years after the offense that he's trying to give justice for. Okay, This has been a long, thought-out, and planned thing. This was not some accident where things got heated in a field of two brothers quarreling. David's sons had a very long history that involved some very, very big sin issues that were kind of being quarreled about. These women, the women's sons, that seems to be absent. David had plenty of other sons to inherit the throne, unlike the woman who would be left without an heir. So what we're seeing here is that Joab gave her her a story that was similar enough, but it was so much softer and so much milder. And he did this in order to appeal to the king's sense of mercy. He left out any parts of David's story that would appeal to David's sense of justice. If her story really was just like the one with his sons and had the same sin in it and the same like difficulties, then David would have never forgiven the crime so quickly. It would have been much more complex of an issue. However, these stories were similar enough that when David pardoned it, she was still able to challenge David on his reluctance to offer the same grace to his own son. So this kind of walked this line of being very different in some major ways to kind of manipulate the way David saw it, but similar enough to then force his hand in certain ways. I want you to notice something really important. When she was talking to him, first he said, sure, I've got this, go home, I'll take care of it. But she didn't let it stop there. And why? She pressed him further. Read 1411 with me here. This is a really key verse. It said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So what the woman did here was she didn't just settle for David saying that he would take care of it. She pushed him further and asked him to make an oath, like a formal oath that not one hair of her son's head would fall to the ground. So in other words, her son would face no punishment. No harm would come to him. He was going to get off scot-free for what he did. 
Now, by having him make this formal oath, this was something that would not have just been her and him in a private room. There would have been other people in here. This was something that there would have been attendants probably or things that were there with David. So when people hear David making a formal oath to the Lord, that kind of sets a precedent for future things that are similar. So now it would not have been right for him to then turn around and punish his own son for a case that was somewhat similar to this one. Okay, so what she did was she kind of manipulated him to where his hands are now tied. I had you guys fill out a chart in your homework this week that was probably really difficult because of those language translation issues that we talked about earlier. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to walk you through the chart and hopefully clarify it a little bit. So go ahead and turn to page 61 for me. We're going to start with the left-hand side of the chart, Nathan's story of the little lamb, and kind of just walking down from top to bottom, what is happening in this story? Well, we see with Nathan's story of the little lamb that God, I mean, that Nathan, or David had covered up his sin. He had kind of brushed it under the rug. His heart was postured away from God's law because he was ignoring his own sin, okay? We move along down and we see that he was ignoring his conscience. He knew what he did was wrong. He was ignoring his conscience. What did Nathan's story do? Well, it forced him to listen to his conscience. And then afterwards, David's heart was repentant. He was now postured towards God's law, and he knew he had fallen short. He was putting himself back under the authority of God's law. That was what the product was when God sent Nathan, okay? Now let's look at the right side of the chart with the woman of Tekoa. We see at the beginning here that David was really reluctant to allow his son home, and that was because he knew that his son deserved punishment for killing his other son and heir to the throne, He wasn't actually able to, like, follow through. David should have probably sent people out to hunt him down and bring him back. He didn't want justice bad enough to do that. Um, But his heart was postured enough towards justice and enough towards the law that he was not going to let his son return home, okay? We know that David has a hard time punishing his own sons, but he was really conflicted here. So when we move down, we see he was listening to his conscience because he wouldn't allow him home, but he was also listening to his feelings. He was very conflicted. He was really struggling with this decision. What was the result of the woman's story? Well, the woman's story silenced David's conscience. It manipulated him into forgiving his son of murder with no consequences. His hands were tied. He could not give his son any consequences any longer. So we see at the end that her aim was to turn his heart away from actually carrying out God's law. She wanted him to ignore that tiny sense of justice that he had left when it was in regards to his son. So do you see how that's kind of the opposite of what happened last week, okay? We know that David has a hard time delivering justice to those he loves. He was at least conflicted about it this time, but thanks to the woman of Tekoa, David is now unable to show justice at all to his son. His hands are tied. So let's move along in the story. This all happens. David now cannot bring justice to his son, and so now he feels forced to bring Absalom home. But we can see by how it goes after that that David is not fully on board because he won't even let Absalom in his presence for two whole years. So this wasn't really his choice to bring him back with no punishment. He's not feeling great about it. So for two years, Absalom is back in Jerusalem, but he's not able to be in the king's presence. And that means that he had no royal courtly privileges. He was not fully accepted back. And during this time, Joab's not speaking to him, and this makes him really mad. So eventually, when he can't get Joab to come to him, he has his servants set Joab's field on fire in order to force Joab to come speak to him. This should make us feel very uneasy about Absalom's character, that he would do this. 
he talks Joab into bringing him into his father's presence. And this is something that is, I didn't pull this from my first reading of it, but reading some commentators, they kind of said that this was basically him saying, hey, bring me to my father. Either he's going to accept me back fully or he can kill me. You know, like, I mean, that's that's what the commentator said. I'm sure that they have more background knowledge than, than me, but he's basically saying this is going to end. I'm either accepted fully or kill me now is kind of what he's doing here. Okay, so think about this. For two years, he's back in Jerusalem. He's not able to be in the king's presence. He had no royal courtly privileges. Think about how Absalom might have been feeling right about now. His father is the king, has all the power, but his father failed to protect his sister. His father failed to bring justice to his brother for raping her sister, his sister, and his father has basically ignored him for five years now after he took matters into his own hands and killed his own brother. He is basically experiencing firsthand his father's shortcomings as the king, and he's probably pretty bitter about everything. He's probably thinking to himself, I could do better. My dad is falling short, but I've stepped in before with Amnon, and I can step in again permanently. He's thinking to himself, I can do better. And then we're going to move on to chapter 15 to see how this plays out. Okay, David has finally accepted him back into the court. And now he has a plan. Let's go to 15, 1 through 6. Now that he is back in the king's favor. <clears throat> After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So what Absalom would do is he would get up early and he would stand by the gate and he would meet people as they came to bring their problems to the king and he would listen to their problems, sort of acting like the judge in this situation, which really was the duty of the king alone. We know the king is inside waiting to hear these people's problems. We just saw him listening to the woman of Tekoa. So Absalom is lying to people, saying the king can't hear them, but he can. And then he would listen, and he would say, oh, there's just too bad that nobody's here to listen to you if I were king. And then he would tell that person exactly whatever it was that they wanted to hear. Because, you see, Absalom could promise these people anything. He could tell them whatever they wanted to hear because he didn't actually have to grant it to them. This was all just hypothetical for him at this point. So he would kind of whisper in their ears and subtly imply, David's falling short, but I could do better. So he does this for four years, and then when the time is right, he takes 200 people with him to Hebron, and he has kind of orchestrated all of this to happen to where he sounds a trumpet, and he has secret messengers in all of the tribes of Israel ready to announce, Absalom is king at Hebron. And all of the plotting and the deceit that he's been doing for the past several years gave him just enough support of the people that it worked. Verse 12 tells us that the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So once again, just like when Saul was king, David is finding himself again having to flee for his life. 
but now it's his son that he's having to fear is going to kill him in order to secure the throne. This is pretty bleak. Now I want to take this moment to step back for a moment and kind of remind us of who it is that we're supposed to identify with in the story. A lot of times we read First and Second Samuel, and our instinct is to say, how should I be like David? Or how should I not be like David? What can I learn from David? And that's good. We definitely should do that, and we're going to do that again here later on tonight. But we need to remember that primarily David represents Christ in this book. We are to identify with Israel. Israel is the person or the character that we are supposed to identify with, okay? So let's put ourselves in Israel's shoes for a minute and look at the story and what's happening. Israel has rejected God as their king, and they've asked for a human king like the other nations. We have seen here that this human king, even though he was good, even though he was a man after God's own heart, even though he was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and chosen by God himself, he fell short because even the best human king is not God. In this story, David fell short. His love for his son interfered with his, with his ability to enact justice. So then Absalom cunningly stepped in and said, I could do better. Then Absalom stepped in and he delivered justice so harsh that it was completely devoid of love or mercy and it failed to bring any restoration. So did he do better? No, he only made things worse. David fell short, but Absalom wasn't the answer. Jesus is the answer. Earthly kings will always fail us in ways that Jesus won't. David fell short because he could not show both love and justice at the same time. But Jesus perfectly demonstrated both love and justice on the cross when he sacrificed himself to bring justice for what we have done out of his great love for us. Absalom tried to administer justice when David didn't, but he failed to bring any restoration to his sister's shattered future. Tamar is still desolate. But at the cross, Jesus brings full restoration of our future by giving us eternity with God. Our future is not desolate. In every way that David fell short, in every way that Absalom fell short, Jesus completely delivers. So what about us? Well, just like Israel, we also like to look to things of this world to be lesser kings for us. We also like to look around and see the people around us and say, well, I also want to have X, Y, and Z like these people have. We see people who maybe have their lives all together and think, well, I want approval like they have. I want a nice house like they have. I want success like they have. Just like Israel thought that a king like the other nations was going to solve all of their problems, we think that the things of this world are going to solve ours. But if you have sought after any of these things for very long, even things that are good, even things that might be gifts from God to us to enjoy while we're here, chances are you have found that they, too, fall short. Our lesser kings, our, worth, our worldly idols, they always fail us. But I want to ask you, how often, when one of these things that we're chasing after fails us, how often do we just have another lesser king or worldly idol whispering in our ear, telling us, just like Absalom did, that it can do better. Maybe we're looking to approval from others to find our value and worth, and that's not working. So then money sneaks in and says, I can satisfy you better than that. So then we start striving for money with everything that we have, and that leaves us stressed out and burnt out. And then comfort whispers in our ear, I can satisfy you better than that. I can do better. 
So then we find ourselves binging on Netflix or binging on food or numbing out or maybe even turning to substance abuse. And then our lives start to feel chaotic and fall apart. And that's not working for us. It just makes things worse. So then the idol of control whispers in our ear, I can do better. I can satisfy you in a way that that can't. And it goes on and on in a never-ending cycle. How many lesser kings are we going to turn to before we finally simply turn to Jesus, the one who can actually do better, more than better? He's the one that can meet our innermost needs and desires perfectly. In every way that every false idol that we cling to falls short, Jesus completely delivers. How many lesser kings and idols will we continue to turn to before we finally give our whole hearts turned wholeheartedly to Jesus and actually believe that he really is better? So do you see now how David, even in his shortcomings, is pointing us to Christ? He makes us long for the one who can do what he can't. Guys, I really wish that we could just stop there because, man, do we need to spend some time reflecting on that. If we lived that way, if we walked that every day, everything would be different. Our lives would be so drastically different. I wish we could just sit in that, but there is more text to get through. We have to move on. So please, in your discussion groups, discuss that farther. That was something that is not in the homework. Um, so let's keep move on in the text, um, and we're going to kind of switch back. We've kind of put ourselves in Israel's shoes, asked how can we identify with Israel. Now we're going to look at some actions of David, and we're going to start asking again, what can we learn from David in the next portion of the text, okay? We're going to see some redeeming qualities in David. Thank goodness. Okay, so Absalom has stolen the throne. David is forced to flee. So the next part of the text, we're kind of seeing him come across several people. A lot of commentators refer to this as his meeting scenes. He's meeting all these people. And each of these scenes is going to show us something important about David's faith and character that we can learn a lot from. So we're going to kind of work through all these meeting scenes very quickly just for the sake of time. But hopefully it will give you the big ideas from each one. First, he comes across Ittai the Gittite. This was a mercenary from Gath, a Philistine city. So he's a foreigner. He's not an Israelite. But he had come to kind of be a part of David's, like, service. And so he is kind of joined in with David. He's loyal to David. And so as David is leaving the city, Ittai the Gittite, he's, trying to, he's coming with him. He says, I will come with you. I'm going to come with you. And David, we see that he says, no, like, you don't have to do this. Like, he wants him to stay. He wants Ittai to stay because we don't know how long he's been there. In the text, it says, you just got here yesterday. I don't know if that's literal or not. But regardless, he has not been here for very long. And so it would have been very easy in that moment for David to think, man, there's people out for my life. I've got to, and like God's like, punish me. I've got to do everything I can to protect myself. He could have been grabbing at whatever forms of protection that he has, but he wasn't. Rather than thinking of himself first, grabbing whoever he could for an illusion of protection, for an illusion of control against God's judgment, we see that he's thinking about others first. He's wanting what's best for Atai, even at the expense of his own numbers. He's not desperately trying to control the situation here. He is really putting himself at the mercy of whatever God brings to him. Then he's going to come across Abithar and Zadok, who is priests, and they're carrying the ark out of the city, and they too are trying to follow David, and they're bringing the ark with him. And David sends them back as well. So, well, he, didn't, he did want to send back Atai. I didn't really get into this, but Atai ends up going with him anyway. So, but he is trying to send back Abithar and Zadok. They're carrying the Ark of the City out of the city to bring it with David. David wants to send them back. And this seems strange to us because we're like, well, why wouldn't you want the Ark? I mean, that's the presence of God. Wouldn't you want that to be with you? 
Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about at the beginning of 1 Samuel, there was that story where Israel carries the ark um, into battle because they're trying to manipulate God into giving them victory. They don't really want to actually turn their hearts to God. They're just trying to use God to get what they want. David here is not even going to have the appearance of that. He is not going to go down that road. He knows that the presence of the ark is not nearly as important as actually having God's favor, and he knows that God is going to do his will. God is going to do what he's going to do with or without the ark. David does not want to use God here by dragging the ark around. He simply wants to submit to him and submit to God's will instead. So once again, he's not trying to control the situation. He's not trying to grab at straws. He is really trusting that God is going to do what God is going to do. And then he comes across Hushai the archite. This is his third meeting scene here. And this Hushai is another loyal friend who's trying to go with him as he leaves the city. And he sends him back as well, but this time it's for a different reason. He's sending this good friend back as really a show of military strategy. He's saying, hey, I want you to go. I want you to kind of be a double agent for me. I want you to tell me, like, get word back to me about what's happening over there so that I can know how to respond. And he also is like, hey, also, whenever he's getting some good advice, I want you to kind of counteract it with bad advice. So he's sending him back to kind of um, have some good military strategy. So here we see about David that he's incredibly smart, and he's still in the fight. He may be running, but he has not resigned. He's not sitting passively by and letting his kingdom slip through his fingers. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but he knows that God made him king. So he's going to continue acting like king. But at the same time, he's going to submit his fate to the hands of God. Maybe God will show him favor. Maybe he won't. David's going to accept either as the good and righteous judgment of his true king. But until that happens, he's going to continue to be faithful to the role that God has called him to. He's not going to sit passively by. So we see here that submitting to God's will is not the same as being passive. We can learn a lot from how David responds here. Fourth meeting scene, he comes across is Ziba. Ziba, if you'll remember, was the servant of the house of God who made sure that Mephibosheth was taken care of. He tells David, hey, Mephibosheth, he's turned on you. He sided with Absalom. Now remember, Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. So all these other people that we've seen that are loyal to him who are following him out of the city and trying to go with him, Mephibosheth can't do that. He can't even come to this place where Ziba is waiting for him. Ziba's there with a lot of supplies for David, but I want you to notice he's not there to go with David. He's not following David out of the city. He's staying behind. He's just offering supplies. And he has this message, your, your servant, Mephibosheth, has turned on you. So we don't know who's to, if he's telling the truth or not at this point in the story. We're going to find out more about this later. So that's why in the homework I kind of wanted you to start to thinking about this. But from David's point of view, he basically kind of takes Ziba at his word. But we know that either Mephibosheth actually has turned on David or Ziba is lying. Either way, one of them is no longer a friend of David. So what we see here is that David, he's not worried. He doesn't have an explosive ego. He's not delivering this harsh, like, heat-of-the-moment punishment that, you know, Mephibosheth is going to die. Basically, he handles it very coolly, level-headedly. I mean, his own son just turned on him and took the entire kingdom from him. So it would not be hard to believe that his loyal servant, Mephibosheth, is turning on him as well. He doesn't know what to think. But we see that he is still acting as king. He is still making fair judgments with the information that he's given, judgments on property and on ownership among his people. He's not letting it kind of make him go crazy here. Last, he comes across Shimei, who travels along, throwing stones at David and his men and cursing them. So that 
seems crazy, right? Who does that? Who goes and throws stones at the king and curses the king? I mean, we can see that this is not, would not be the kind of thing that would have, people would have been allowed to live. We see even his men are saying, how dare he curse the king? Let's go and cut off his head. And so obviously, it's in, the instinct is this man deserves to die. But let's see what David's instinct is here. Let's read verses 10 through 13 to see how David responds. And David said to Abishai and to his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with the good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed him as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. Guys, there was a part in 1 Samuel where Saul sinned. And Saul was rebuked, and Saul reacted very differently than this. He didn't really repent, but what he did do is he begged that he would still be honored in front of the people. Saul, last year, when the first Samuel, he did not care about God's judgment on him, but he desperately cared about what his people thought of him. I don't think we could have a greater contrast to that than what we just saw David do. David's not concerned with being honored in front of any man. He's completely submitting himself to whatever judgment has fallen on him, even if that means being cursed by men. David cares more about God's judgment and submitting to God's judgment than he does about clinging to his own reputation. So we see all of these meeting scenes. They kind of give us this picture of David, this picture of David that we're like, there he is. That's why we love you. That's why we love David. He's not blaming anybody for his sin. He's not taking out his anger on anybody. He's not grasping for control of the situation. He is truly submitting to whatever God will do to him. Once again, I wish we could end there, right? That's a kind of a high note to end on. But unfortunately, there's a little bit more text, and we're going to have to end on a little bit more of a heavy note. The author then takes us back to Absalom, and we're going to end our section tonight on what might be the darkest moment of the book yet. And after the last several chapters, that is saying a lot. Let's read 16, 20 through 22. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go to your father's concubines, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. If you remember, I think it was last week that we saw that to sleep with a king's wife or concubine was to make claim to the king's throne. And Absalom, he didn't just like slyly sneak, like, like slyly do this. He didn't just slyly take a concubine or wife to sleep with to make this claim. He set up a tent in the sight of all the people, and he made a public display of taking not just one, but all of the concubines that David left there to take care of his house. I think we read earlier, like a couple weeks ago, that it was 10, 10 of them. He was making a very public and a very graphic display um, to make a statement that he was now king. I want you to remember the words of Nathan last week as he delivered God's judgment to David. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. 
You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And isn't that what we just saw happen through the entire text tonight? Guys, it is really tough having to watch justice unfold for David. I know whenever I've heard the story of David and Bathsheba before, I've always heard it in isolation. And I've always kind of felt like, well, man, David kind of got off easy. He still just gets to be king, and there's not really any justice for him. He didn't have to go to jail. He didn't have to do any of these things. But, guys, nobody ever taught me this section. Nobody ever taught me all the stuff that happened next. David did not get off easy. He didn't just get to keep being king like nothing ever happened. God did deliver justice, and that justice played out among his immediate family. It played out among those that he loved the most, and it was not pretty because the effects of sin are supposed to be not pretty. They are supposed to really disturb us and make us feel uncomfortable at the least. It can be hard to read this and think about how unfair that it feels that everybody whose lives are ruined are ruined as a result of David's consequences. So first we saw the death of his son last week, and now we've seen the, de- the rape of his daughter. We've seen the death of another son, and now we've seen all of his concubines being taken by another son. Part of us just feels like, well, man, shouldn't David have a punishment that just affects himself, not all these other people? It's really gut-wrenching and uncomfortable to see the consequences of sin playing out on everybody else this way. But I want you to realize that even this, this makes us cry out for Jesus. Because we've seen other people had to suffer and die for David's sins. And that feels wrong. But Jesus came and said, I can do better. And Jesus turned things upside down. And he suffered and died for the sins of others. For me and for you. So you see, others had to suffer and die for the sins of David. Jesus suffered and died for the sins of others. Earthly kings will always fall short in ways that Jesus won't. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for difficult texts. Thank you for for letting us challenge with hard things and helping us all in here just to have the just the willingness to push through things that are uncomfortable, things that are hard to read, things that a lot of times people in churches would just rather not think about. But there's so much richness to these texts, so much that we have to learn. And God, I pray that the things that we need to hear from these texts, that your spirit would continue to impress upon us, that we would leave here discussing things that are truly going to change the way we walk with you, that this would not just be information, that these would not just be stories that we hear, but these would be things that change us and transform us and change our lives more into your image. Thank you that we serve a God who can do what nothing in this world, no lesser kings can do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.